Take a network break. Help yourself to a virtual donut as we traipse through this week's tech news. We're going to cover an HPE acquisition, new features in a network management platform, security breaches, financial results, and more. We're sponsored today by Itential. Itential simplifies automation across hybrid cloud network infrastructure. Their platform makes it easy for network teams to bring their own automation assets and scale their network automation efforts so you can spend more time working on things you like instead of repetitive, tedious tasks. Find out more at itential.com slash packet pushers. And then after the news, we talk about open telemetry with sponsor Cisco Thousand Eyes. Open Telemetry is an open collection of tools, APIs, and SDKs to help share telemetry data among different monitoring and analysis platforms. We'll talk with Thousand Eyes about how they're using Open Telemetry to integrate network visibility into a broader observability data. Uh, and if you like Network Break, check out all the other podcasts on our network. We've got Day 2 Cloud, Heavy Networking, IPv6 Buzz, Full Stack Journey, Kubernetes Unpacked, and Heavy Strategy. It's nerdy tech analysis and compelling conversations about infrastructure, cloud, professional development, and more. It's all at packetpushers.net. Uh, yeah, before we get started, we should note, Drew, that next week is Mobile World Congress, and uh, I'm expecting to see more news next week that might be a bit more, another quiet week this week in a way, but the news that's here is probably very aligned to telcos and service providers as Mobile World Congress, you know, people start to hold up all their announcements since Christmas for that event and try and think, and because they think that'll get them noticed. Yes, so more product news probably next week. Mm. Let's get in and see what we got here. Uh, first, HPE is vibing private 5G provider Athonet for an undisclosed amount. Athonet's an Italian company that offers private 5G to mobile operators, as well as industries such as hospitals, airports, utilities, and more. HPE is going to offer private 5G via its GreenLake model, which gives you cloud-like consumption-based pricing for on-prem hardware and software. Yeah, so Athonet is a private LTE, private 5G provider, as well as selling it to public uh, solutions to smaller mobile telcos. It's an Italian company, been around for 15 years or so. So it has a reasonable amount of uh, customer base. So I think if I had to guess, HPE is hoping to offer this as a managed service through its GreenLake. So they sell you the infrastructure as GreenLake. Maybe they sell you the software as part of Esmeralda. And this is a going concern with a full-on business unit with you know so services and support and installations around the world. And I would say that HPE still believes that private 5G might be a thing. So this is part of building out a solution stack for that. Yeah, so it's actually HPE's second crack at the private 5G market. It announced a private 5G offering back in 2022 based on its own 5G core stack, which is an integrated 5G offering primarily aimed at telcos. But I think HPE thought, oh yeah, we could also sell this to, to private 5G folks. I guess uh, they came across Anthonet and, and thought, oh, they've already got you know about 400 customers. We can sort of instantly become a private 5G <laughs> provider by buying Well, them. it's more convincing just because you have a product doesn't mean you have a service sales and you know a reputation right. in the market and a footprint and getting into the telco market is a 10-year to 20-year exercise. And HP doesn't sure. have that long. It needs to start delivering um, much quicker than that. Uh, I noticed that it's previously partnered with a company called Airspan for low-cost 5G in a previous press release, um, which is a bit weird. Like, I I suspect that what was going on there is there's a customer out there who wanted HPE to help with Airspan deployment. And so partnership was announced, right? Uh, Uh Athenet is an outright acquisition, and they claim on their website to have more than 15 years of experience of delivering 4G and 5G mobile core solutions, both private and public. And they talk about... You know, leading motor operators, hospitals, airports, transportation ports, utilities. Um, so uh, it's not clear to me that private 5G will be a significant market. Like when 5G came out, we saw a lot of vendors, uh, particularly 5G vendors and and things saying, oh, 5G is going to change the world. You know, remember all the breathless hype and we were laughing and joking about it. 
well, we were right. (laughs) Which is our want. (laughs) (laughs) And we were right. They were wrong. You know, has everybody gotten excited about 5G and raced out to throw out their Wi-Fi and get private 5G? No. However, I still believe that it's a significant niche market. Whether it's significant enough to justify spending significant money, I'm not so sure. Um, Because I'm also looking at Wi-Fi, you know, like Wi-Fi 6, then 6E, and now Wi-Fi 7 is being publicly promoted, won't be coming until 2024 in any realistic way. But does that reduce the need for private 5G? I don't know. Uh, so HPE cited uh, IDC research saying that the private 5G market is going to be worth $1.6 billion within the next three years. So that's, I think, a sizable enough sum that HPE and others want to get in there because, as we've mentioned in, in previous shows, folks like AWS, Azure, and Cisco have also announced private 5G offerings. Yeah. Uh, so it does seem like a big enough pie that these companies yeah, want to get into it. You know, that's the same company that predicted that SD-WAN would be worth $23 billion by 2024. That's not happening. Uh, you know, uh, reading something, I thought Vodafone said that 5G was going to generate $8 billion in extra revenue in 2023. No, Oof. no, no, I'm, no. I'm hasn't guessing happened. that didn't happen. No. Right. So, you know, I'm pretty dubious. I don't think that it's going to be huge. It's not going to replace anything. But the, if you're running a port or a mine or, you know, some sort of industrial site, Wi-Fi doesn't work so well in those environments. Whereas mm-hmm. the sort of frequencies that you have with 5G and the ability to communicate and start to do IoT in those environments is important. So you might be willing to take the extra cost of running private 5G. But I think most customers will stay with Wi-Fi. Um, if you're you know, doing an office network or something like that, you're going to have a lot easier time doing zero trust on a Wi-Fi than you are on a, you know, and keeping your legacy devices than you are on a 5G network, even if you're using the Wi-Fi components as well. I take your skepticism about the, you know, mm. potential size of the private 5G market, but I do think there's an appetite there. And I also mm. think, you know, HP does have the Aruba uh, Wi-Fi unit, uh, and now they can, you know, rock up and say, we've got Wi-Fi and 5G, we'll give you whatever it is you need. And Aruba also rolled out a capability called AirPass a couple of years ago that automates the handoff between a mobile network and a Wi-Fi network. So they're also, I think, oh, positioning so- themselves to tell the story of, of seamlessness <laughs> in that uh, if, you've, if you've got one of each, then we can put them together for yeah, you. Yeah, I don't, I, I They've got a great story here now. They've got a, a proven product that's deployed around the world and a team to be able to support it. They can probably sell it as a managed service. Uh, we saw AWS pick up its mobile uh, managed mobile service for running 5G cores on AWS and announce more features this week. We've seen Azure make a make a significant acquisition with MetaSwitch. So it's got a whole 5G stack. So HP needs to be there, but I'm not sure it's big money. Well, the fact that they didn't uh, disclose the acquisition price makes me think it's not a substantial amount. Maybe we'll yeah. be able to to parse that that out from their next uh, financial results statement. But to, That's uh, I'm guessing point. it's That's a very good point. small money because HP is yeah. not that large financially, so it must have been a fairly right. Yeah. It's yeah. not like there's Cisco so. or you know Amazon where those sorts of things just get gobbled up in the general noise. This they are not that financially well off. So yeah. Right. Yeah. All right, links in the show notes if you want to dig into it yourself. We'll move on. Uh, OpenNMS, they make the open source Meridian network management product. They've announced new features in their 2023 release. Updates include the ability to run OpenNMS in a container. In addition to on a VM, OpenNMS also now offers a hardware appliance so you can deploy it on premises and in remote locations, and the appliances can be managed via the cloud. Wow. And, the, you know, when you put this in there, I went like, oh, is that still going? Uh, that's uh, <laughs> OpenNMS was something I was using some years ago. Um and it's still going, and it's now owned by a health company, which I thought was really interesting. I noticed that. I thought that's a weird tie-up, yeah. but okay. Which is <laughs> and it's super interesting because it, I would think that this 
health organization maybe had a significant commitment to using it and then they set up a, an open source. So there's two versions of it, OpenNMS Meridian, which is a subscription service, and then there's OpenNMS Horizon, which is a free community supported. So the traditional open source model, you can get a version which is ahead of the curve, quick release, and it's free. And if you want something that's more stable and supported, you can have Meridian. Uh, and basically they put out a press release saying that they've updated it with a bunch of new features and it's still being developed and, and running on time was my reading of it. I especially loved in the notes where I was reading it up on seeing what the features were. It says, developed in Java using Spring, Hibernate, Drills, OSGI, and Varden with PostgreSQL and RRD tool persistence. That's a very retro architecture by today's standards. Well, you also mentioned in the show notes that you called it venerable. So I guess <laughs> that's what you're getting. <laughs> yeah. but I, I mean, I, on the flip side, probably does everything you want, right? It's published under AGPL3 open license and it's fully open sourced. So, but it's sort of, I don't know, it doesn't seem to have kept up with the sort of the fashion in the industry. I don't hear engineers talking about it very often, but I bet it's embedded in a lot of big companies. It could be. Yeah. If you're using it and you like it, I guess, or don't, whatever, let us know. We're always curious to see mm -hmm. what's happening with stuff out there. Uh, but if you're looking for a, a network management platform, maybe this is one that you should be checking out. Uh, moving on, the U.S. Department of Defense says it has secured a cloud-based server containing sensitive military email and documents. The data on the server was freely reachable to anyone who had the IP address, likely due to a misconfiguration. Uh, TechCrunch is reporting that the server was hosted in Azure's government cloud, which is physically separate from Azure's commercial offerings, but a misconfiguration error made that server available to anyone. Uh, somebody's going to be in trouble because uh, not only does it contain uh, military email, apparently it actually has a whole bunch of applications. So this includes questionnaires, which are filled out by people seeking security clearances. So this is right. really, uh, <laughs> you know, basically background checks and in particular around special forces, as far as I can tell. I believe that US SOCOM, which is the Special Operations Command, as best as I know, could be wrong. Um, and so you're talking about operatives in really, really sensitive jobs, you know, with the, mm -hmm. some of the most secret clearances that actually had their data exposed to on an IP address on the uh defense cloud that Azure custom built. So you'd have to say that there's been a failure of something there. Now, whether it's the military, somebody in the military uh, misconfiguring a database or misconfiguring a store, a data store, or whether Azure failed to implement something, that will be something that we'll probably never hear about because there won't be a postmortem <laughs> published on that one. <laughs> oh, I can imagine the finger pointing yeah. between uh, Azure and the Defense Department, yes. And weirdly, the researcher, security researcher, who's known for discovering sensitive data, uh, chose to provide the details to TechCrunch so that they could alert the US government. So that would suggest that there's no way for that person to do it directly and had to rely on TechCrunch, of all people. Not exactly an organization I would have thought of as being my first port of call. Right, but I guess they did reach out and, and the U.S. Uh, military has uh, <laughs> taken care of it, they say. <laughs> Probably. Uh, and also TechCrunch asked, you know, can you tell by the logs if it was accessed? And the U.S. military had no comment. That's, that's right. I wonder why. <laughs> <laughs> right. I, I mean, I sort of, you hear about this somewhat frequently, these misconfigured servers that are available to the public internet. And I'm just wondering... <laughs> Is it time for the cloud providers to start just doing default deny and make you open it up? Or yeah. is that uh, a bridge too far for them? I don't know, because these kind of, you know, uh, very basic errors really shouldn't be happening at this day and age. Yeah, my understanding is that AWS has done that. And I would have thought that Azure had followed. But if anybody knows whether Azure has a default deny, but I would have expected for the separate military cloud for Department of Defense, that would have been the case. In which case, it uh, yeah. sounds to me more like somebody's made a boo-boo, you know. 
yeah, been doing be. something and and then forgot to lock it up before they went home. That would. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go with that. How's that? We'll take that. Yeah, we'll put that on the spreadsheet and see what happens. <laughs> I'm right because we'll never know because it's a secret. <laughs> <laughs> we probably will never know. <laughs> yeah, that's right. They'll tell us and then they'll take us out back and mm-hmm. yeah. All right, uh, moving on. Aviz and Marvell are getting a partnership around uh, a network OS based on the Sonic uh, uh, operating system. Yeah, we talked about Aviz Networks or Aviz, 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 who knows? Um, Don't know. When they came out of stealth about uh, two or three months ago, um, they have taken Sonic distribution, added some Kubernetes to it, and very much focused on the application networking model, building Sonic into a you know ready network NOS. Um, obviously, a startup would struggle to get attention from companies like Broadcom. Uh, they might have had some success with Tofino, but of course, Intel's decided to kick that out of the out of the park, um, and that really only leaves. Um, Marvell as the other maker of ASICs that is out there other than Broadcom. There are a few others, but let's go with that for the, the purposes of this um, because really there isn't many more. Um, and But they haven't done a lot to promote their network silicon or their switches. And so I think what they're doing here is relying on partners like Aviz Networks, really retro ideas, sort of very 1990s. You know, I will, our partners will go and sell our ASICs for us. Uh, mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. that's not how it works. Um, if you look at what Broadcom's done, that's not how it works at all, right? Um, <laughs> but I do also note that Marvel has uh, their uh, Optera, which is their DPU ASIC, as well as their Prestera, which is their switching ASIC. So they're one of only two vendors that have both a DPU ASIC and well as a networking ASIC. Broadcom doesn't have a DPU ASIC as far as I know at this time. So it is interesting. There's so much potential there for Marvel, but I'm not sure they're going to get tra- get traction at all. Well, by going with Sonic, uh, Marvel immediately makes its ASICs potentially appealing to Microsoft and its Azure cloud because it was Microsoft that initially developed Sonic to help run its Azure infrastructure. So that's an easy slot in. I'm sure there are other, you know, tier two and so on cloud providers also looking at Sonic. So it makes sense for Marvel to go this way. Uh, because it does provide that, you know, uh, it, it can adopt a, an easy, open, already available network OS to bring to potential customers. Yeah, I definitely think so. It's not in any way a surprise that they would be doing it, but why is Marvel yeah. not out there saying, we've got this amazing ASIC that can do all of these great things, and, you know, why are you not talking? I know that uh, for time to time, Arista does use Marvel ASICs, and I know that they've been very popular in the campus switches where the costs are much lower than the Broadcom ones. Um, but Broadcom doesn't takes a dim view of their customers not doing what they want them to do, so they don't mm-hmm. talk about it much. But uh, it'd be interesting to see if Marvel can turn that around. Yeah, that's always good for competition. So uh, Marvel should step it up and get out there. Yeah. Right, a quick break to tell you about our sponsor, Itential. Today's network span physical, virtual, and multi-cloud infrastructure. Itential's automation platform makes complicated networks more manageable. You've got tools like Ansible and Terraform and Python that can help you handle routine tasks, but they're limited. The automations you build with them only focus on specific tasks rather than the full change management process. With Itential, you can use the assets you've already built and then integrate them into a larger, more comprehensive automation workflow. Itential provides low-code capabilities so you can easily build and run workflows that automate the entire network change process from ticket creation to ticket closure. With Itential, you can incorporate existing CLI and custom scripts into automation workflows or build your own automations. Maximize automation from ticket creation to closure by integrating automations with your entire IT ecosystem. Create guardrails to prevent errors with robust pre- and post-check processes and make your automations accessible for self-service access that anyone can execute inside or outside the platform. So know your network, automate your network, Find out more at itential.com slash packet pushers. That's I-T-E-N-T-I-A-L dot com slash packet pushers. And we thank Itential for being a sponsor. Mm, we do. 
I'm all about the low-code platforms at the moment, and they're one of them. Yep, for sure. All right, moving on. Uh, news has come out that attackers stole login credentials for two data center operators in Asia, GDS Holdings and ST Telemedia Global Data Centers. These data center operators host brand name customers, including Apple, Goldman Sachs, and Amazon. According to reports, starting in 2021, attackers may have stolen login credentials that let customers remotely access equipment hosted in the data centers. The attackers also got access to security cameras in the data centers. Yeah, I've often wondered just how many of these data centers have been compromised. And when we talked about supply chains, it's been a couple of years since I raised the topic on the show because there's been no smoke, you know, around this issue. But it's been increasingly obvious that a lot of these uh, data center providers are not up to standard. Like uh, last week it was GoDaddy. We talked about how it's now been realized that hackers were inside of GoDaddy's system for several years, possibly as many as five, Mm -hmm. but certainly three was released in the the post. And there's really no one holding these people to the fire. Like where's the, the requirement for these companies to be secure? And clearly there's none. People were in there, um, deep into systems, able to access OpenBMC, Drax, cards, you know, ILOs, mm-hmm. all that sort of stuff. And they were able to exfiltrate the data from the data centers um, by accessing them through this backdoor that's been there for years, you know, possibly two or three years. And now some of these articles are suggesting that many of the hacks that we've seen over the last you know, five years may have actually been because of these backdoors. And we just didn't twig to the fact that the backdoors were in the actual data center infrastructure, not in the applications themselves. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, there are standards in place, uh, requirements that data center operators have to meet, um, you know, to get those standard requirements and for <laughs> customers to actually go in and use them. I know, I can hear you laughing. <laughs> I've worked in those data centers. That's funny. <laughs> yeah, of course there are. Yeah, yeah, standards. Standards. Is that what you call them? Yes. All right. Go right That's ahead. what you call yeah, them. Good. Yep. Good. Yeah, great. Uh, but clearly there are issues. Yes, mm. uh, 100%. Yep. Mm. Yeah, so uh, uh, the infiltration was flagged by a security research company called ReSecurity, which has found the leaked credentials on hacking sites. Yeah. Uh, and also thanks to a listener uh, who reached out to us uh, via packetpushes.net FU uh, to give us uh, these links. Uh, if you've got other comments, corrections, or stories you want us to update about, uh, head on over to packetpushes.net slash FU and you can contact us there. Yeah, oh, well, just some, I'm going to jump in here and say we're also doing our audience survey uh, around about this time. Uh, where we actually get your feedback uh, to give us some numbers about who you are, what you do. It's all anonymous. Uh, it's got some bad jokes in there just to make it less tedious because it is a bit long. But it's our once a year audience survey that we do to try and find out who you are. It helps us with working with sponsors um, so that we can get sponsors to come on board and listen to us when we say, please make it interesting and don't suck. So it'd be very helpful for us if you <laughs> find that survey. It's uh, linked out on the website. If you could uh, get and then fill out the data, that would be great. We'll make sure a link is in the the show notes for today's show. Absolutely. All right, moving on. Uh, the company behind SaaS providers Basecamp and Hay claim they're going to save $7 million over the next five years by exiting the public cloud and moving everything back to co-located data centers running hardware that they're going to buy themselves. Yeah, this is a great story because this is something that's been going on for a while. Um, they originally posted an article uh saying we're going to move, you know, we've just realized that our cloud costs on AWS are extortionate and we really can't continue this. And we've did some quick calculations and we're going to be moving into our own. Everybody went, oh, you think you can, but you can't. Uh, What he's actually done here in this post, which I think is third or fourth in the series, and he's outlined Mm -hmm. how much it would cost. He would have to buy 600K of hardware, which he feels he can amortize over 
five years. So that's only 120K a year. They've allocated a 500K slush budget over the five years, and they're going into a colo facility for the power, the cooling, and the hands, remote hands. And it turns out that they think they only need six racks for over five years. Uh, they lay out in the post some details about how many cores and how much story they need. It's really not a lot. Um, and then some of the other commenters have jumped in on the thread saying, you know, six racks, automating six racks in 2023, not a lot of hard work, right? All that stuff has been done. If you're already in the cloud and everything's in a container or a VM and, you know, you've been automating the deployment of your app, you couldn't move off out of a cloud and, and it wouldn't be very expensive at all. So sort uh -huh. of a poster child for this, it's time to start really thinking hard about whether you want to be an off-prem or not. Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, it seems like repatriation is sort of now the, the cool thing. Uh, a lot of the cool kids are getting out of the cloud. Uh, and frankly, yes, there was a lot of hype about the cloud uh, over the past decade or so, including the uh, <laughs> the untruth that it was cheaper than doing things on-prem. That's, you know, that even at the outset, when folks ran the numbers, it was clear that it was at least as expensive and not, if not more yeah. than running on-prem. But there were reasons for going to the cloud. Uh, so we don't need to rehash that argument. Uh, I, I think it's it's great if people run the numbers and find out yes we can do this cheaper ourselves fine that's great that's uh, and you absolutely should uh, I would say some reasons why you might want to stay in the cloud business continuity high availability disaster recovery uh, those factors also have to be calculated into your business plans I didn't necessarily see that in this post which obviously is just back of the napkin but yeah. I'm curious to see how that factors into their budget as well and their thinking yeah well they do all of their software in house so it's not really a need and they're team of developers focused on a software SaaS product. So for them, it's a different sort of um, premise to the one that, you know, you might think of, say, for an enterprise cloud. But increasingly, I'm, I'm on the view that um, the greatest scam that off-prem cloud people have pulled is they originally said the cloud was cheaper than doing it on-prem. Yes, if you're avoiding spending your 600000 it's cheaper. But as it turns out, it's about three times more expensive than doing it on-prem on most of the time. Um, and now instead of saying it's cheap, they say it's easier and it scales. And we don't actually see right. the word cheap or cost-effective ever talking about off-prem. And I think people are starting to realize that if you're going to automate 10,000 servers in a data center with 20,000 customers or 50,000 customers on those servers, the complexity of doing that in a reliable, safe, and secure way is huge. And the costs associated uh -huh. with inherently managing all of these different software platforms and all these CPUs and all this storage and all the networks and all the is is and the requirements for QA and security because they've got so many customers who have to have trade, it's going to be more expensive. And I think I've been saying this for a very long time, but not a, maybe as pointedly or as clearly as I can now with hindsight, is that at the end of the point, at the end of the day, yes, scaling does get you some benefits and some efficiencies, but at only for a period of time until the complexity builds up. And I'll give you an example. Look at power. We talked last week about AWS is having to build its own power stations. Well, those power stations are subscale. They're mini power stations. So they're not building coal-fired power stations with 300 megawatts. They're building little tiny inefficient ones at 30 megawatts or 50 megawatts. So now all of a sudden the so-called scaling of data centers is actually anti-scaling because there's no more scaled up power to be bought. And so it's going to be interesting to see how this pans out in the, in the years ahead. I mean, we're definitely now, cloud adoption happens so fast and so rapidly, we're running into the issues no, of, never, in fact, cloud does not really infinitely happen. scale. That's a, mis that's a misnomer. I don't think we ever saw a lot of cloud adoption. They've got growth and there is money being spent in the cloud, but there's not a lot of actual adoption from the enterprise. Mm, I think I'd, we'd, we'd need to see some numbers to mm. argue that. I feel like 
There well, is. Uh, okay. And- so the off-prem cloud <laughs> business is around about $30 billion a quarter. All, for mm-hmm. all of them, Azure, AWS, significant business, but $120 billion a year out of a trillion dollars is not huge. Total IT spending, yes. Uh-huh. That's right. So, uh-huh. yeah. okay, yeah, you know, it's not mass adoption or mass transition. It's It's been very slow, yeah. Okay, I take your point. The The point I was making is the other myth that we're running into is that cloud is infinitely scalable. In fact, it's not. Uh, it is bounded by the harsh uh, harsh realities, including physical space uh, and power consumption, which we're running up against the limits of. Absolutely. So, yeah, there are issues. <laughs> the problems. As, as, it's, it's always about trade-offs. I haven't said that. It's also good to give someone else your problems. <laughs> Sometimes, absolutely. I mean, it really depends on what are you optimizing yeah. for. That's 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 what you should be if thinking I'm about when you're thinking to about be cloud. Not blamed when things go wrong, I'm happy to give it away to anyone. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> absolutely. And there's that is a strategy. That is a definitely a strategy. I'm in for that, right? <laughs> Just be honest about it. <laughs> sure. Yep. That's. <laughs> All right, uh, moving on. Intel is cutting the dividend it pays to shareholders by almost 65%. Intel's hemorrhaging money, including a net income loss of $4.6 billion in its most recent fourth quarter earnings. Intel says it decided to cut the dividend to, quote, best position the company to create long-term value, i.e., we need the cash now, but please hold on and we'll try to make it up to you later. <laughs> we had a whiny section a couple of weeks back where we got all socialist and started to complain <laughs> that Intel was fought laying off the workers, giving them forced pay cuts and clearing out entire product lines, like defenestrating entire product lines, like the networking team, the Defino and so forth. And I said at the Mm -hmm. time that something should be done about the dividend because they said the dividend will stay. And it seems like now the shareholders will have to suck it up after all because the execs have caved into the reality that they are going, you know, we're going to pay $5 billion out to shareholders in dividend and they just don't have it, right? So dropping Mm -hmm. the dividend from $0.36 to $0.12 is a step in the right direction, but that's only cut it by six. Two thirds. They should have gone all the way and said, "Like we're in trouble. There's no dividend." But they they really don't feel like I think the they really don't feel like they can do that, or the shares will get strongly sold off, and none of the execs will make mm-hmm. their money. They won't get their bonuses through, and that would be terrible if they took a risk in the that executive would be, banks. That'd be a heartbreak. Heartbreak. A heartbreak. Yes. So they went on to say a bunch of things. So I think it's finally a sign that shareholders should be taking some risk. But it's a bad look to say, yeah, the company's in trouble, but the shareholders come first and then sack all the staff that they don't, they think they can, then cut the pay of everybody, you know, forced pay pay cuts is not, not pleasant. Mm-hmm. And then say, mm-hmm. but the shareholders are okay. And then three weeks later, not a good look at all. Not, not professional. Yes, uh, I think it's a sign of just how much trouble Intel is in financially that they have to take this step because, you know, stock price is everything and they want to keep shareholders Mm -hmm. happy and making shareholders take a haircut is a hard step, but clearly obviously necessary. Uh, And so, yes, I guess good on Intel for finally acknowledging this and uh, making it happen (laughs) and they will take the pain now and maybe hopefully they can pull out of it later. Some of the initiatives are a bit strange too. It's uh they, they've got some bloviated worlds. They said, we're operating net net CapEx intensity in the low 30% range. In other words, they've stopped spending on new facilities and so forth. What the heck is net CapEx intensity? <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> it's, a, it's a sort of an accounting measure of how much CapEx you're spending. And what they're saying is they're just spending less on building more plants. So they're not building to grow here. They're establishing mm-hmm. an internal foundry model. In other words, when Pat Gelsinger joined, he said, we're going to make our internal, we're going to tear our internal foundry model down. Because we don't want to be the only people using our foundries. We want other people to come along. Well, that's not happening. So a foundation, foundational change. And it also talks about advancing at smart capital strategy. 
In other words, going with people who've got money. So finding partnerships with people because Intel doesn't have the money or the skills to actually build new firms or whatever. It's a real admission that Intel's um, really fallen off the horse. And I actually note that its revenue is dropping extraordinarily. Um, they, there is a real risk that Intel uh, may disappear as the organization that we recognize today. And a lot of the analysts are becoming very negative about the whole thing. So it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. We may actually be seeing Pat Gelsinger came along and actually killed it. Not that it wasn't dead before, but, you know, we'll see. Right. Maybe. That's not something I'm putting on the spreadsheet. <laughs> okay. You don't feel that strongly about it. No, I think there's too much opportunity. The, the brand is too well known and they've got a position, but they need enormous amounts of capital to refresh. Basically, they haven't spent money refreshing any parts of the business. That You know, the factories are way behind. Some of their product lines are very stale. They're not in touch with what's currently happening. I mean, AMD's doing it better than they can not to mention what ARM's doing. TSMC is doing better at the foundry. Even Samsung's doing better than Intel at foundry work. So hard to imagine that Intel's going to turn around quickly, really. I, I will end up by saying it's it's nice that our, you know, whiny socialist ranting uh, finally caught up with Intel and they are passing along some of the pain to shareholders, not just <laughs> totally uh, to employees you, and executives. All that socialist <laughs> whining that you do. <laughs> <laughs> Impact. <laughs> As I feel vindicated. Vindicated. <laughs> As if. <laughs> right. Yeah. I'm sure they're listening very closely to what oh, we have to say. Oh, right. Yes. Yes. <laughs> All right, our last story for this episode, uh, chipmaker NVIDIA announced financial results for its fourth quarter and full year fiscal 2023. For the quarter, the company had revenues of $6.05 uh, billion, down 21% over last year. Net income was $1.4 billion, down 53% over last year. Uh, for the full year, NVIDIA had revenues of $26.97 billion, which was flat year over year, and net income was $4.4 billion down 55%. Yeah, the analysts were expecting uh, NVIDIA to announce a pullback. They felt that the loss of the sales of GPUs because of the failure of crypto and the fact that gaming people haven't picked up the slack in buying GPUs. And apparently there's just like so much GPUs stocked sitting in the channel waiting to be sold, stores and warehouses and so forth, that NVIDIA was expected to go down. So while um, GPU revenue is down, um, apparently its gaming platform picked up quite a lot. This is its uh, equivalent of its thin client gaming where you can connect to their servers in somebody else's cloud and play the game and all you do is stream the screen. And that's been picking up quite substantially. There may be a bunch of people who left Google Stadia who then switched over to NVIDIA's gaming platform. But in particular, their AI has really, they've really captured that a lot of that industry the um, AI software that runs only on their chips using their using their custom software platforms, uh, mm -hmm. CUDA, uh, means that NVIDIA is really ahead on the current attraction of AI companies. And they're now talking about building entire sections inside of other people's data centers, so like Azure and so forth, so that people can do AI using their silicon. So they're actually expected to sell a lot more. And that was unexpected to some extent. And so the analysts are all like, oh, wow, oh, wow. And so the share price popped significantly and jumping up from $207 to something like 235 which is a reasonable jump, putting them back on course to have a not bad year. You would not be surprised to learn that in the press release and in the uh, transcript of the earnings call, AI was all over the commentary uh, from uh, NVIDIA executives who are touting, you know, no, large you language models say. are getting, are everywhere and say. AI is going to be everything. And so don't worry about the yeah. results we just turned in. Think about the future and yeah. all of the AI that we can sell. Yes, so, yeah. AI, AI, can I say it a few more times, you know? <laughs> <laughs> right. 
<laughs> it was like they were getting paid for every time they said AI. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> and I, I, frankly, I think they are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just about everything at the moment has been done on NVIDIA's AI chipset. So, yes, as I understand yes. it. Yeah. So AI will lead NVIDIA to glory at some point in the future. Maybe, but they're in a very strong position. It's hard to imagine that they would lose control in the near future. So. Yeah. All right, well, that wraps up the news portion of the show. Stay tuned for our sponsored Tech Bytes conversation with Thousand Eyes, where we're talking about open telemetry. That's coming right up. Today on the Tech Bytes podcast, we're talking about open telemetry with sponsor Cisco Thousand Eyes. Open telemetry is an incubator project within the Cloud Native Computing Foundation. It's a collection of tools, APIs, and SDKs to help share telemetry data among different monitoring and analysis platforms. Our guest to walk us through how Thousand Eyes is using open telemetry is Mike Hicks. He's principal solutions analyst at Thousand Eyes. Uh, Mike, welcome to the podcast and give us the overview. What, what is open telemetry? So I think you just covered it quite quite nicely in that that introduction there, actually, Drew. But but from from essentially what open telemetry is is this ability to uh, take data sets um, or information or, or, or data from there, metrics from there, and actually do it in a uh, a usable format or a common format that can actually be compiled with let's say disparate data sets. So as you said, it has its history in the uh, the Cloud Foundation, uh, and it's also then a, a joint thing with Google. But actually came out and said we want to be able to instrument the application at its source. So the instrument the application around from there. Um, and then we want to do this in a common format. So we're not having to have these unique agents that sit out from there where we're going to have to uh, take everything in a proprietary format. This mm -hmm. is something where we can actually go and understand how the application is running on from there. Then obviously we want to be able to share that information across multiple areas from there. So historically it's actually been sort of the, uh, the, the in the ownership or the, the purveyor of the application owners themselves. So where we've actually then sort of taken it and we've looked at the traditional, let's say metrics, uh, events, logs, and traces around from there. So the melts, as you would from an APM world or an observability, mm. and actually taken those data and put those those uh, information together. But obviously, that capability, that format, if we can actually put that on other data, we can start to sort of share that data around from there. Is it just data normalization? Like open telemetry is is a format, and if you adhere to the format, it's easier to consume the data. Or is it is it more than just data normalization, Mike? Yeah, it, it's more than it's, it's a good question. It's more than data normalization. So, but that is the, the the main basis of it. So, it's the normalization, but it's also the export of that data in that format itself. So, it comprises of multiple things within there. So, first of all, we want to normalize it. We essentially want to make sure that it's tagged. So, we've actually got that that system around from there, uh, and then we want to export it around from there as well. Okay, so the idea is everybody, there are a variety of platforms for collecting all kinds of data. You mentioned metrics and so on, but it's formatting is an issue. So if I wanted to munge data from one system to another, there's a normalization process I have to go through. It sounds like what you're saying is by organizations <laughs> following this format, they can add tags to what they're collecting so that uh, any other system following this format can ingest that data and say, okay, this is an IP address, this is um, a trace route, this is a ping, et cetera, and I, can, I know what to do with those because I don't have to go through that normalization phase because of the tagging? Yeah, first, I love that word munge, by the way. I like that. It's a, that really brings <laughs> it together. But, but uh, yeah, yeah it, it is and it isn't. So there's sort of four formats of data that you can actually send out with open telemetry. So you have the, the sum, which is just a counter. You have gauge, which is actually then sort of taking series of data and putting it together, which is what we use from a thousand eyes perspective is, is the gauge format from there. And then you have sort of combinations using histograms, which take that information out from there. So that's the commonization format. Within that, you have the ability then to sort of assign the tag within that, which lines it up. But the, the, the commonality thing is sort of can't be overlooked because if you consider taking in um, sort of 
traditional network data where we're looking at flow type of data from there. I'm timestamped essentially at the source around from there. So, you know, even with deduplication and going through this process, I have potentially this overlap information, mm. which means if I try and combine these two different time series data together, really what I'm looking at is coexisting within a database. I can't actually sort of have that data where I can start to work on it and I always use the word manipulate, but that's probably not what I want to use uh, to actually uh, work with that data so I can actually use it in the, in the true context as opposed to just having it visualizing sitting together so it's just that combination of the commonization of data but also the ability then to correlate and align it together because it is that's what the tagging essentially allows us to do we're tagging on a session id or something from uh, down that line so how does open telemetry fit into the thousandized world? It, usually the conversation seems to revolve around Kubernetes and monitoring what's going on within a Kubernetes cluster when I've heard of open telemetry talked about before, which isn't the first thing I think of when I think of thousandized. No, absolutely. Yeah, no, we, we've, as I said, it obviously came from the application world where, where it grew out of. But this has been a little bit sort of driven by by customers. So, so we've got billions of metrics within there. We're looking obviously at the network performance sort of data coming out from there. Um, but then we've had these requests. So I want to take this data and I want to take it at scale because this is also something else that's kind of capable within open telemetry is the ability to effectively stream this data out that you can actually do that in, in this, this common format to then put it into a large database where we actually want to work on this information. So we've had that request to come out from there. And this was the easiest way for us to take that data out and, ha- and not have to build a, um, a bespoke connector or collector uh, system to actually sort of being able to have that data in this, this this separate database from there. Then the second aspect of that is if you think about how sort of the network's evolving, we talk about the the concept of the internet is now the new the new WAN, um, and then you know sort of the the, the SaaS is new application stack. Uh, the cloud is a new data center. Those types of things. Now from there, we're starting to have the importance of having that network data coexist essentially with that type of um, application data that we have from there so I can actually answer more questions. If I look specifically what's coming into an open telemetry uh, system before, I'm looking very much at what's happening on that host. I'm looking obviously uh, across those systems you said about the Kubernetes, how are they performing, what's from there. But how is that data coming into me? Is there something within that network path that is relevant to me that I actually want to do? And beforehand, I can look at that data in in, in the context, I could actually say and pivot across from there, but now I can truly correlate it. But take that into the next stage, and this stage, and this is then where we had sort of customers coming to us and asking uh, for to be able to consume our data is that they wanted to be able to take it into systems where it was not typically uh, existing. So it wasn't normally like a, a network centric view they had. They were looking at uh, you know potentially sort of maintenance types of data they had in, into there. So they wanted them to be able to. Well, what if we actually sort of overlaid that with a network? with performance data that we, we can get out of a thousand eye system. And now we can actually start to answer all sorts of questions and, and refine our answers as it were. So that leads to my next question. Then who is consuming open telemetry data? Who's the target for this? Originally, when we're looking, obviously we're going through this beta process at the moment. So when we're actually testing the, the, the format and looking from there, we kept it sort of within our own environment. So from observability platform, we actually look to then put this into app dynamics. So they have the capability to sort of consume our data uh, within from there. Now, again, that's fairly important because originally they were, we were viewed our data. We've had that correlation before, but now we can actually sort of share data. So that means, again, they can work on the data within their workflows within that system. But beyond that, anybody that's actually open telemetry um 
speaking or, or, or compliant, as it were, has a capability to actually sort of take data from Thousand Eyes Open Telemetry, the support that comes in from there. So think of people like Grafana, Splunk, those, those types of uh, systems, okay. which are open telemetry can actually do that. But beyond there, you can actually then sort of start to take it into other databases, so AWS, SMS, anything like that. So I'm feeling dumb here, Mike, but I think I just got an important detail. Thousand Eyes is taking network data, presenting it as open telemetry, and then is able to present that to other sources that want to take that and use that in other open telemetry data that they might be consuming. Do I have that right? Yeah, no, that's right. So that, that's the first stage, but it goes goes into there. So it's actually putting in from there. Now, if you think about the concept or the, the components with open telemetry, the word collector is in there, and it's, it's, it's kind of a bit of a misnomer, really. So a collector is uh, part of the, the, the system, open telemetry collector, which actually allows you to do the formatting, the tagging, um, and then the exporting of that data. So it's collecting your data and exporting. So that's actually what we're doing in this first stage. But the capability then to take it in in the future exists, obviously. But the beautiful part about this is, is I can take that network data, as you were saying before, and apply it to the rest of my, my app stack. So now I have this correlation between what's going on in the network and what's happening higher up the stack. 100%. Yeah, so you can take there. So if you think before, we're looking at a network from there. I'm looking at the local interface. Now I'm looking at that complete path that comes out from there. I'm curious if there's a use case around this for, you know, maybe I'm an SRE or a NetOps person and I get the ticket that the network is slow and I'm so I'm trying to figure out, is it really the network or is there uh, an issue maybe at the application layer? Uh, you mentioned Cisco AppDynamics, that's an APM platform. So now with the APM platform able to consume Thousand Eyes data, I can tell the APM team, hey, go take a look at this for me and see if it actually is a network or we're having a problem somewhere else. Is it that a uh, use case around with open telemetry? It, that, absolutely. But that use case essentially existed before because that data was available. Now, what this does is that now the, the SRE who lives within AppDynamics, for example, can actually sit within there and I can look at that data within my own workflows. So I can actually look at it and I'm staying within the tool I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable with. I have the workflows. I don't have to learn a new syntax. All that data is in there. So it's, it's more than just this sharing of data. It's actually putting into these workflows so where they can actually say, sit where they're comfortable um, and, and then take it beyond there. So if you can think once I've now had that data physically residing in that platform or that tool around from there, now I can actually start to do other things with it beyond just showing the data. Okay. Something jumped out of me in that the syntax, it's a syntax I'm comfortable with and a format I'm comfortable in that the, the data maybe yeah. makes more sense to me is more useful to me. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, and it, it, it's quite important. You know, we all talk about this breaking down the silos, communicating across the silos. Right. Now, what this allows me to do is to take that data and I stay within my silo, as it were, <laughs> but I've still got access to all that data. <laughs> uh, we always go back and forth. Now we're going to be talking about resiloization. That's going to be the next buzzword. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so you, uh, we mentioned, you know, open telemetry, uh, Cisco Thousand Eyes and Cisco App Dynamics are able to share open telemetry with each other. Are there other platforms using open telemetry or is this all sort of a Cisco thing? It's a, an open standard or de facto standard is probably a, a better way of describing it around from there. So there, there's sort of many, many tools or platforms out there actually using have the capability to do it. And there's a lot of open source tools that can do this. So think about Prometheus and these types of things obviously have the capability to sort of consume this data. Um, what we're doing is making this data available in that format. Okay, so if I go onto the open telemetry site, I can see all the platforms that are supporting it. And if everybody's doing it, conforming to this de facto standard, they all should be able to to share and consume this data. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And that, that's the, the thing. If you actually go on that standard, that, that 
if you go to the um the, the form there you'll see the list of uh, uh vendors up from there and they will be predominantly um well they'll all be observability apm type of platforms around from there sort of focusing on area there what we're doing is kind of introducing that network component to it as well bringing that network data in sort of the, the first people to sort of bring that network view into there so you're saying thousand eyes is the first visibility the network first network product to, to support open telemetry yeah exactly so it's really focusing on that network component itself so you know focusing on the path the source the destination that information that you would get from a, a network perspective yeah we're the first one to do that there has been sort of other people but they've always been focused around the events the logs and the traces that come out or the events and the logs that come out from their systems who could have some network elements to them but this is the first one that's actually looking specifically at the network component and make it available in open telemetry format so if I'm a Thousand Eyes customer, I'm already using you to collect network data. Is there anything I have to do to start uh, working with OpenTelemetry as well? Like, is this a just press a button in my console and now I'm I'm formatting data to be conformant with OpenTelemetry? Or is there other work I have to do on the back end myself? Yeah, no, at the, at the moment, like I say, we're in this beta phase at the moment, but the idea is, is that this is basically available within the Thousand Eyes platform there. This is just a format you do. So similar to you'd be taking alerts out through webhooks, this capability from there, then this is really just, you'd have this capability to set up the receiver around from there and then point your Thousand Eyes data to that. Um, that's, that's, that's the plan. All right. Well, I feel like there's probably more to dig into here on OpenTelemetry and what Thousand Eyes is doing, but uh, unfortunately, we're out of time. So, uh, Mike, if folks want to learn more for themselves, where would you send them? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'd love to talk all day about this. Um, so the best place to come and get information is thousandeyes.com uh, forward slash blog. And then we have all the latest information around sort of what's happening on the Internet, the health, everything around there. All right. That's thousandeyes.com slash blog. We'll also have the link in the show notes to take you specifically to the blog uh, about OpenTelemetry and what Thousand Eyes is doing, along with other uh, links and resources for Thousand Eyes. Uh, thank you, Mike, for joining us. And thanks to Thousand Eyes for being a sponsor. And thank you for being our listener. Uh, check out our network of podcasts. Uh, we're talking about cloud networking, Kubernetes, and more. We also have our community blog. It's all at packetpushes.net, where you can also subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and join our Slack channel to interact with like-minded technologists. You can follow us on Twitter at packetpushers. Find us on LinkedIn here us on Spotify. And if you would rate us on Apple podcasts and last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.